Welcome to Manufacturing Mavericks, a podcast where we showcase and celebrate exceptional people from across precision manufacturing who are boldly embracing new ways to improve their processes, grow their bottom lines, and ensure American manufacturing will thrive for generations to come. Welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Mavericks. I'm your host, Greg McHale. As the founder of Datanomics, I've had the privilege of visiting hundreds of shops all across the country. And in those visits, I've met some of the most incredible and innovative people in this industry. Our goal with the Manufacturing Mavericks podcast is to highlight those leaders, those mavericks of manufacturing who are innovating, not just with technology, but with culture, people, and process too. So we can all learn not just what they do, but why they do it. We'll dig into what got them into manufacturing, what fires them up to go to work every single day, and pour their blood, sweat, and tears into keeping the manufacturing dream alive in our country. With that, I am honored to introduce today's manufacturing maverick, Mike Payne of Hill Manufacturing. Welcome to the show, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm awesome, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, Mike, because I've been out to your shop. You know, we talk in the introduction about people pouring their their blood, sweat, and tears uh, into their business. I think we've had phone calls at 5 a.m. We've had phone calls at 11 p.m. Talking about talking about how to get that edge and and how you're growing and and the types of things that you're doing. So I, I think this one's going to be uh, uh, fantastic for our audience. So really, really appreciate you being on. Blood, sweat, and tears is absolutely right. And I know I'm not unique in that, but I can actually walk out on the floor to show you some one of my blood stains. Oh yeah, hey. we got to start with <laughs> let's let's start with that. How did that happen? Well, stupid me, total operator error. <laughs> You know, we had promised a customer some parts tomorrow and the somebody they needed to run all night for that to happen. And I said, guys, I'll run them all night. I don't care. So a couple hours into the evening and one of my, my last guy's leaving and he comes over and he says, hey, whatever you do, when you open that door, don't pull that that one chip out that's that'll be hanging off from the park. So you're going to slice your finger. And I turned, I was like, Hank, I know that <laughs> you don't need to tell me that I'm not stupid. <laughs> and within about 15 minutes, I was texting him a picture of my thumb sliced completely. <laughs> <open>. <laughs> yeah. So, but there is still a blood stain on the floor from that. Hey, owner running an important job. That's the sweat part too, right? It's a two for one. Yeah. And my tears are here also. For sure. <laughs> they have to be good and bad tears. Yep. It's just how it has to be. So, you know, Mike, you have, you have a super interesting background in terms of types of things you did previously, and then ultimately how you took an interest in manufacturing, you know, as someone who really came at it from the outside in. So why don't, why don't we start with what was the progression of your career that, that resulted in that manufacturing torch getting lit for you? So this goes back 25 years ago, maybe. Graduated college with a degree in management information systems. So computers for business people. Was a founding member of a software company. Our niche was in the manufacturing space. So if you go back to the you know mid to late 90s, you can imagine what was going on. It was a little bit of Wild Wild West, right? With computing and people were just starting to even get computers at people's desks at that point. Companies were implementing massive ERP systems. Only your biggest of big companies were doing it, of course. But they were, I guess, basic by today's terms. So they're making these major investments in these systems, but they aren't getting the data they need off the floor necessarily to have good systems. So our specialty really was in integrating 
into shop floor systems or kind of creating shop floor systems to feed into financial ERP systems. Yeah, or we're based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if anybody that's in consulting is listening to this, as they know, a good consultant is always from out of town. So we traveled the country, essentially. I mean, our customers were all over the place, mostly Midwest, but everywhere. And they were some of the largest companies at the time. You know, you'd recognize most of the names. But I got to walk on these floors and see tires made, vegetables canned, milk jugs made, airplanes, paint. If it was made, I got to see it made. I mean, that, that's the way it felt. I loved it. When we would go, when we'd go these places and plan out these systems, we would often be on site for anywhere from a month to six months. I got to spend every day on, on a shop floor, essentially, asking people, what's that piece of paper for? Should we replace it? Just fell in love with it. That company did well. We, we grew pretty rapidly. We exited about six years later in, in exiting the company. So we had gone through a couple of rounds of fundraising. We'd gone through the process of selling the company. And in that, I also found a, a passion for the transactional side of business, buying, selling, investing. So from that point, I was sitting there going, what do I want to do now? And it was not retirement for the rest of your life type of money. It was just, I mean, we exited. That sounds good. and. But I mean, I, I wasn't getting to hang them up, right? I was 30 years old, had a one-year-old and maybe a two-year-old, but little kids ready to go. I found myself essentially in private equity for the next 15 years. Bought, sold, funded, managed, turned around, so forth over, I don't know, I think it's over 120 companies over the next 15 years. A lot of those were also in manufacturing. I, I don't know what percent, I don't, I don't know account or anything, but The ones I liked the most and the ones I had the most fun with were definitely in that space. All along that line, I was looking for something to buy myself. And eight years ago, I was actually helping sell Hill Manufacturing. From your PE side? From my PE side. I had known the founder for 20 years and was helping her evaluate buy offers. Eventually just made my own. That sounds like cheating. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, maybe. (laughs) It actually, the maybe the first offer I made might have been cheating that she <laughs> she turned down mine and the one we were doing. But the last one really came, and I'm sure a lot of people, I mean, I know a lot of people in manufacturing and, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this can appreciate. She had kind of reached a point of just sell it. I don't care. Right? Like just, I'm done. And there was an offer coming in that I, she probably would have taken and I didn't like it. And and I said, no, we're not selling for that. And let me get you a better offer. And I made the offer. Wow. So you, you didn't cheat. You actually improved the outcome. Yeah. So a couple interesting threads there, Mike. Your first view of the shop floor was actually from the software side. And you said shop floor systems. And you know that can mean a lot of different things. So I'm curious, what kinds of shop floor systems were you guys doing and how how did that get you connected to the shop floor? So how we defined our niche is we were shop floor data collection. That meant a lot of things, as you can imagine. Uh, this is also, again, go back mid to late 90s, like barcode scanning is becoming affordable and readily available. There's, there's a lot of things going on in technology at that time. Price of equipment's coming down, you know, price of hardware is coming down, all sorts of things you know, even memories becoming more and more available, right? I remember I, I always joke, like we used to, there was a hypothetical thing called a terabyte back then. 
Um, and, you know, now I think my phone may have that. I'm not sure, but it could. You know, so things were just rapidly changing at that time. But really what we looked to do on the shop floor was we were just looking to collect data to feed the ERP system. So the ERP systems at that time, in my opinion, were mostly grown out of the finance or the accounting office. And they said, we need all this data so that we can crunch the numbers and know how we're doing and how this job went or whatever. So they relied very, very heavily. And I, and I remember walking into places where you'd have 100 people doing data entry of the pieces of paper that came off the floor yesterday, right? <laughs> and it might it might be production data. It might be quality data. It might be inventory data. I mean, it could be everything. So our job, when we would walk into XYZ you know, company that's 2 million, 3, 4 million square foot buildings, with thousands of employees was to go, okay, what data can we collect directly off the shop floor, get better data, you know, less opportunity for manual entry, which creates errors, all those types of things. So we're, we're, we're putting terminals in people's hands to do counts. We're tying directly into machines and pulling machine data, you know, counts and runtime type stuff, much like Datanomics does. You had it way harder than we do. We had it way, way harder. <laughs> and yeah, because back then everything was, I mean, there was no, there weren't really standards. No. But yeah, so we're, we're tapping into this machine differently than we're tapping into the machine next to it. But we're capturing as much data as we possibly can to feed back to the, the ERP system, essentially. I mean, I'm very generally using the term ERP, but shop floor data collection really was our specialty. So we're using barcodes to keep inventory or, or inventory locations. We're you know, so we're implementing like that whole system, you know, again, we're tying directly into machines that, you know, it's maybe like how much of this, what's the weights of the inputs, how much does that output to then turn into how many parts did that make? How many, how many widgets did that make? Uh, we're collecting quality data, all those things that, you know, frankly, today we kind of take for granted, but back then it, it, that was a piece of paper that went to an office and somebody was sitting there in a, Maybe not completely by the end of the 90s, but, you know, it, you might have walked into a smoke filled room of 75 people <laughs> just sitting, typing away. And a matter of fact, when I was in college, I had one of those jobs. I sat there for eight hours a day, taking forms, entering in codes. Paper in your left hand, number pad in your right hand. Keep just crank. I can out 12 key almost anybody I know, Greg. <laughs> I believe it. No competition for me. I'm not going to try. So we're collecting all that type of data, feeding it into leadership, whether that's shop leadership, financial leadership, you know, whatever could then crunch that data and, and get, do job costing or inventory analysis, whatever they were needed to do with the data. So that actually gets you connected to the business processes pretty intimately, right? Yeah, we had to, as you well know, being in the software business yourself, I mean, you need to understand how the data you're trying to collect is gathered, but you also need to know how they're using it. So yeah, we absolutely got well into the reporting side of things of, okay, how can we present this to you in a valuable manner? So that exercise, basically, you learn you learn the hustle and bustle of, of the shop floor. You've got the data that's tied to the critical business processes people are trying to execute. Okay, let's get this stuff automated. Then, so you get into private equity manufacturing businesses or whatever, a decent percentage of the stuff that you're doing. Did you feel like you had a leg up on how to assess those businesses from that experience? Like you, you take a look at Hill, you're, you're working with the owner. She's trying to sell the company. What's the connection between all that time walking all those shop floors 
and how you start thinking about and falling in love with Hill? I think it just satisfied a lot of my personality, maybe. You know, when you when you just look at, I mean, I, I get excited about working with my hands to start with. Probably my most long lasting and, and fun hobby as an adult is doing woodworking, right? Because I just, I like making things. So going back to being on the software side of things, you, know, you got to start to see how small changes can have massive impacts. If you're able to speed up a process, if you're able to improve a process, improve the quality of a process, anything like that. Once we had the data and we saw, we could see, oh, from the last time we did this to this time we did this, this one change in the process affected a lot of things. But at the end of the day, is it making you more money is really what most business owners should be focused on. Maybe they aren't always focused on it. We prefer when they are. Right. And it's not all about, I mean, well, we don't need to get into that. It's not always all about making more money. It's about doing things better, safer, you know, whatever too. But, you know, couple that with, my then 15 years of buying, selling, trying to improve companies, you know, when I look at cost reduction, I look at it at four or five times that, right? So if I save $10,000, I save 50, right? Because I'm looking at a multiple of EBITDA on that number. And if I spend money, if I lose money, I'm looking at a four or five, six times that. It's just, to me, it's, it, that was probably a, just a really great baseline of the, the marriage of all those skill sets I have and that I enjoy to pull all that together into saying, you know, looking at Hill and saying, gosh, okay, this is a good business that exists and, and has opportunity to do a lot more. So that opportunity to do a lot more, obviously rooted in your optimizing business processes, you're collecting data to help do that. As someone who comes from PE, I mean, that's the name of the game, right? It's all, it's all optimization. Now you, you get your hands on the business and What's the culture you walk into? Like, what's the state of a shop where the owners had it for that long and they're like, hey, I just want to sell the thing. So, so what do you walk into and, you know, what, what are your observations? You know, six years later, I'd say we walked into a very traditional shop. We walked into a, a good family environment. I have people here today, six years later, that had worked for her for 10, 15 years prior to me buying the shop. That's awesome. And they will tell you they were family. They knew they were loved by her and vice versa. They loved her. We had a real concern that we'd even be able to retain everybody when we bought the company. And she did good with us, you know, kind of during the due diligence stage of making sure. I think there was only one other person in the company that knew the sale was going through. Because I had been working with her a few years, they knew my name and face at least. At least most of them did. So it wasn't a total shock, I don't think when we had that first meeting. But I'd say the overall culture of the company was a tired 40-year-old company with a lot of really, really, really great employees that had been making, in, in some cases, the same parts for the same companies for 40 years. Not exclusively, but I mean, we still today are making parts they made in the first couple of years of starting this company 47 years ago now. I hope those are some of your best performers. They are. At least we, we know them the best. <laughs> we haven't always been able to adjust the price to being best performers, but there was, I mean, there was this huge legacy of the company with an unlimited future. That's what as investors, buyers, I liked was if we change nothing, this is a good investment. It's a good company. If we bring to it 
the current state of the industry, there's huge potential. So that's that's the road we set out on. There, you know, work holding was tired, tooling was tired, certainly technology across the entire organization. And when I say that, that's I mean, I understand technology is a very, very broad term, but I still had someone using an old CRT monitor when I bought the company. The electricity savings alone. Right. (laughs) You know, and and at that time, like a new flat screen's 99 bucks, right? But I mean, to me, I mean, it's the heart and soul of the industry, right? I mean, what we bought was, it's it's a get it done company, right? True entrepreneur, you get it done, you get it done with what you have. If you have to invest, you do. Um, If you don't, you don't. Absolutely. I mean, that's this industry. And I, I mean, I think that's part of what I love about it. I still tell my team this often when I ask, can we do this? Like if I'm out, you know, talking to a new customer or whatever, I remind them this, but, but I think the industry in general already acts this way is don't tell me no, tell me how, right? It's a can do attitude. Like, yeah, we can do it. It may or may not be the most economical or smartest decision, but we can do anything. And I think that's part of what I love about this industry is, is people just that have that are veterans of the industry. That's just how they approach life. And it's like, I mean, these are my people. Once I got in, I mean, that's what I realized. I mean, and I, and I guess I knew that before, but, but once I own the company and I'm spending, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours a day with my team. Yeah. These are my people. These are, we get it done. What a great way of saying it, Mike. I mean, you're right. The, the entrepreneurial spirit in manufacturing, definitely one of the things that that drove me to the industry as well. I mean, I look at it as a as a software startup guy. Every part is a startup. You look at it and it's it's a journey from what's the concept? Can we make it? Should we make it? How do we do it better? How do I if I, you know, if I get 10 right, can I get 100 right? If I get 100 right, can I get 1000 right? Do I have all the things I need to take the sales of that component to the next level? Can I get more business from that person I just did that component for? I mean, every part has baked into it unlimited upside that is tethered specifically to the creativity and the capability of the people trying to get it done. I mean, there's, there's just, there's no better thing. Yeah. I mean, I I laugh sometimes in my team. I mean, we have such a great working relationship now, but they get it done. I'm decent at sales, Greg. You're good. You know it. I mean, we're all in sales, right? I mean, whether you're selling yourself or whatever, but you know, I'm like, like any good salesman, I sometimes commit to things that you come home and they go, why did you say we could do that? <laughs> and this, I mean, this goes back to the software days, right? Yeah. That, that never <laughs> happens in software, Mike. Right. Um, <laughs> you could say it's a personality trait, but by God, they figure it out and we get it done. Those are people I can work with. Love it. I mean, I know, I know how important culture is to you. And I actually think, you know, when, when someone visits your shop for the first time, there are two significant indicators of your culture. And one of them is that, that fantastic break room. (laughs) Everybody loves the break room. I want to talk about the big red barn. And then the second one is a sign you have hanging in your men's room. But let's do the barn first. <laughs> okay. So um, t- tell us about the barn. I, I have to give credit to the original owner on the barn. God bless her. I'm so glad she did it, but it fits so well with where I, what I wanted to do anyway. So she grew up on a farm. So one, to her, farming represents a lot of things. Heart and soul of America, hard work, and get it done. The other thing, the big red barn 
you know, indicated to her was that in her mind, if you had a big red barn, you had a big farm and you were very successful. So when she was building out the, the facility we're currently in, moved, I, I think she moved in here in 2007, 2008, so whenever that was exactly. Uh, she said, I want a barn. <laughs> so they built her a barn. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's, so it, it's our break room. If you're standing in the middle of the shop, you look over and you go, why is there a big red barn in the middle of your shop? And, and I get that question a lot. And it, and you're right. It is, everybody likes to talk about it. What worked so well for me, and again, go back to where I kind of grew up in the, in the late nineties, two thousands technology space, Silicon Valley's blowing up, right? You had the dot-com boom, then the bust, and then mobile coming along, like all this stuff's going on. One of the things that was constant through that was this kind of like Silicon Valley environment, right? Where it was not only did you have a place to go work every day, but you had a place that was fun. You stayed there and your friends were your coworkers and it was it was more of a lifestyle necessarily than a job. And I'm a big believer in culture. I'm a big believer in having those types of things. So yeah, our big red barn's got a pool table, it's got TVs, it's got a full kitchen, it's got a beer fridge. It's got deer heads hanging, deer heads, moose head, elk head, bobcat, uh, mountain goat. Uh, most of those things have come from guys that say, hey, my wife won't let me hang this at the house. Can I bring it up here? <laughs> the odds and ends. Right. I mean, yeah, we just try to have a fun place, right? I mean, it's, look, we spend, I, I at least myself, and I, and I know most leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, we spend more time here than we spend anywhere else to a large degree. So do our employees, right? I mean, they may be here eight, 10, 12 hours, but by the time they leave the house and get back home and, you know, you throw a lunch hour there in the middle of it, we're spending more time with each other than we are our families. Good, bad, or indifferent. And so you might as well enjoy it. I would say even continuing the culture of Hill, but, but maybe also trying to turn the volume up a little bit is, is trying to have an environment that, we like being here. We like each other. You look forward to going to work on Monday because you want to tell your buddy what you did this weekend versus, you know, the old Garfield. Oh, God, it's a Monday. Right. Cartoon. <laughs> Part of that, too. And, you know, and I think this is something that everybody that's in our space can acknowledge is that when I bought Hill, I think it's accurate to say I was the third youngest employee of the company. Third youngest. Third youngest, meaning everybody in this building is going to be gone before I am. And I don't know how to run a machine. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so that's a problem from a sustainability standpoint. I had a, you know, if, if, it's, if a big, I, it's a big problem. Yeah. If I wanted to sit down with that, that, that first day and put up a SWOT analysis, right. That is a huge weakness and a ginormous threat. Fast forward six years. I think I might be the second or third oldest We've really, really, really tried to build a company around the next generation of manufacturing leaders and building them, growing them, training them, and also just providing them a workplace that they want to come to every day. The Big Red Barn is, I mean, I, I actually love that people ask me about it because I think it talks a lot about really who we are and where we're trying to go, even though it's just a big old red barn in the middle of the shop. Yeah, I mean, but it's it it it's literally in the middle of the shop, right? It's almost dead center in that wall, and it represents the heart of the building. And it's just it's just so unique. It's you you walk in. I mean, I remember my first time. I go, "What the hell is a big red barn doing in the middle of the shop?" <laughs> that is a very common reaction. 
I got to I got to go check that out. And then the other part, which is what, what's actually fascinating about this, and I don't think I've ever told you this, Mike, is so you've got a sign in the men's room, right? And then, so the first time, the first time <laughs> I come out and visit you, I see this sign on the wall and I just I just love everything that it says. And I take a picture of it <laughs> and I and I share it with our company, you know, in, in our, our company Slack channel. And I say, I say, hey, guys. Here's a fantastic example of how our customers think about accountability and prescribing culture within their shop. So, I, you know, I, I'm there first time I see it, take that picture, send it. Then, you know, fast forward a couple months, I think we come out to hook up more machines our guy that goes out there does the same exact thing. He takes the picture <laughs> and he sends it to some of the new guys on the team. He's like, this is awesome. You got to see what this says. Like, this is so cool. And then double fast forward. And one of our sales reps is that where you're doing the, the Tony Gunn interview, right? The video where, where the big red barn is, is prominently featured actually, right? In the, in the video. And, and, and he does the same thing. He's, he takes it, he sends it to some of the other new guys. He's like, take a look at this. This is how, like, this is it. This is how customers think. So what's hanging in the bathroom? <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember how it's titled. Essentially, it's my basic expectation. And it's so that we're all on the same page. Right. It's also the front page of our employee manual. So I got I, okay, rabbit trail. I'll tell you about our employee manual. Sometime in the first week of owning the company, or I asked somebody, I said, Hey, can I get a copy of our employee manual? I, I want to see what expectations we set. And one of the first thing I read, Greg, is not the first thing, but at the point when I said, Okay, we've got to do a new employee manual, was when, when I read that. You couldn't have a Sony Walkman on the floor. <laughs> now, now, Greg, I read this in 2018. <laughs> and, and I bet you, I bet you, I bet you that problem was solved by then. It, it, yeah. It, it, no one had one. <laughs> Gosh, I, I mean, I guess I need to go read it again, but uh, so that I could talk a little more about it, but it's just covering the basics, right? It's, it, Hey, let's show up to work, be ready to work. Let's get our machines running. Let's keep our areas clean. I mean, it's a machine shop. It's definitely not perfect. And then it gets into a little bit more of when you have a part and quality for first article, what could you be doing besides just sitting around waiting for approval? Right. You, well, you could get ready to run. If you're going to, if you know, you're going to burn through a tap every 10 parts, you got a hundred parts, go get 10 taps out of the, the tool room, things like that. I mean, it's, you know, in, in my mind, there, there's nothing necessarily revolutionary in there. We call them our shop standards. I, mean, I know right out of the gate, you know, we say, look, basic goals on a day-to-day -day basis is to have 85% efficiency, you know, our, our scrap expectation, our on-time expectations, you know, even things like, here's the information I expect you to know. If I or anybody else walks up to you and asks, um, you should know what's the setup time on the part you're setting up. What's the cycle time supposed to be? When is the part due to the customer? And not only when's the part due to the customer, but when's your operation due to your customer, which is the next guy running your part, right? If you're running the first op, your customer is the guy running the second op. And when is he expecting to have it so that we can stay on schedule with the customer? I mean, super simple, but it's not necessarily the way we were thinking at the time, right? And then, I, then we go into that whole starting a job and, you know, if you're fighting a setup, don't wait around, like get help. It's okay to ask for help. Like no one's going to, 
No one's going to knock you for asking for help. We'd rather it be done correctly and quickly and on time than you fight it all day long. And then then it kind of goes into running a job. I think one of the things that, I mean, it almost seems silly to have it on there. I think it's on there. Again, I need to go look again. <laughs> but, but, you know, like double check and make sure your rapid's at 100%. Because sometimes during setup, you don't have it at 100%, right? What I had found in that first year or so, I, I think we put this up in that first year of Heaven Hill. And the, um, you know, we might, we might get, all the way through the rest of the first day on a job and someone had forgot to turn the rapid back up. Well, good Lord, you could be losing 10, 20, 30% time on a part just because of that. Very easily, maybe more, depending on how many tool changes you have. And it happens. I, I don't, no one's doing it deliberately, but it does happen. You know, just putting even that type of information out there, like, hey, just pay attention to the small stuff. If you've got a 30 minute runtime and, and the guy in the cell with you is in the middle of a setup and he's maybe struggling a little bit, we'll help him while you're sitting there for 30 minutes in between pushing the green button. Just things like that. Kind of the anybody that owns a shop can. And there's there's probably a million different ways to approach this. But even just things like I, 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 have, I assume from all the shops. I haven't been in as many shops as you have, but I have been in a lot of shops around the country over the last five, six years. I don't think I'm alone in, I get a part started and I pick up my phone to look at social media or watch a YouTube video or whatever. So even that, right? So we had to, we had to kind of address that and just say, it's the Sony Walkman. I mean, I think we can all recognize there, <laughs> there still is a Sony Walkman. You might prefer, you might prefer the Walkman. Right. <laughs> you know, but, and, and basically, you know, kind of even, I think on that, same thing. We address that to say, look, if if everything we've talked about on this piece of paper is, is taken care of, then I don't care if you're on your phone, right? If the spindle's turning and you're taking care of business, whatever, it doesn't matter. I think it's unreasonable to say we're taking phones off the floor and all that because, you know, anymore, I mean, the guys don't have a machinist calculator, right? They have an app on their phone for that. So there's there's value in them having that. We We send out messages across the company via text. And if if I didn't allow them to have phones on the floor, they wouldn't catch that. You know, we've even, you know, some of the, I think, you know, some of the same things we talk about on that is, okay, so we, so we do a 45 minute lunch and, and, and a 15 minute break twice a day. So on the lunch, my point is, look, you have, a, you can have a 45 minute lunch in this hour and a half span, because what I had found prior to this, you know, I don't know, explanation, not rule, but. You know, if it's five minutes before lunch and I got 10 minute runtime, I'm just not going to run apart because lunch starts in five minutes. What by giving, you know, a little bit of freedom there, you know, there's there's no Fred Flintstone blowing the whistle at the rock quarry. You know, just be smart. Uh, Run one more part. Go a little bit over. Start your lunch five minutes late. That's okay too. Same way with breaks and so forth. I mean, what you're getting at and asking that question is it's just kind of it's. The list is not like, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, as much as it is just kind of these shop standards of here's kind of the guide rails we're expecting you to operate within. You know, we want things kind of straightened out, cleaned up. We want you to run your parts smart. If you've got one or two parts left at the end of the day, just run them out so we can start fresh tomorrow. Nothing frustrates me more when I walk through at the end of the day and I've got one part on a job left. And, you know, it's a it's a 15 minute cycle time. They could have finished in 15 minutes. Tomorrow is going to take them an hour, right? Because they got to come in, warm up the machine, size it in, run the part. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to come yell at you because Fred Flintstone already blew the whistle 
at the end of shift and you're still out here running apart. What all that boils down to for me and the, and the culture that I'm trying to drive day to day and, and is part of our mission statement now and everything else is we just want to be professional. And, and in a professional world, you don't have, you know, necessarily a finite list of rules to follow, right? You have guardrails and I, you act like a professional, you get your job done, you, you act professionally. I'm not going to question you why you had overtime or you didn't have overtime. You got your job done and you want to, and, and it's, it's a little bit early on a Friday and you want to go fishing, go. That's fine. I want us to behave like professionals. I want us to be professionals to our customers. And, you know, if, if we do that, everything else kind of takes care of itself. I know what, what our team loved about it was it's sort of this combination of like, Hey, here's some of the awareness things, little shortcuts that if we, if we do these handful of little things, it has a significant impact. And then, oh, by the way, it sets you up for all these other opportunities. Like, like you've got stuff in there about cross-training. It's like, well, if you help the guy with the next stop, guess what you learned, right? Now you know how to do this. Well, what does that do for you, right? It's, it's, it wasn't just about like, hey, here it comes down from on high of how you work. It was, it was literally all rooted in employee development and how it makes the company better and what that really means and what systems and tools and things you've put in place to try to help have that professional and highly effective work environment, which I, I actually think transitions beautifully in, into something that I know is, is important to you, which is, you know, really technology as part of the culture. And you've got You've got, I, I, you know, I, I can, I can picture it in, in that thing that's hanging up there. You've got what the efficiency target is. You've got, you know, pay attention to your cutting time and your touch time. If you don't know this, go look it up in Pro Shop. And if you don't know how to do that, ask. Right, right. It's, it's all such a nice closed loop thing. But again, a lot of what's woven in there is how that feeds the development of the employee which helps the growth of the business, which feeds investment back into the business to help the development and growth of the employee. So, you know, with, especially with your, with your PE background and investment background, I mean, how do you see technology integrated across your business? And like you said, technology is a massive word, but then also, you know, what specific investments have you made in the last couple of years and what are you seeing for impact out of those? It's a big answer. Probably I'll try to keep it reasonable, but go back to why I bought the company. I, I saw a tremendous legacy business with, with a lot of untapped potential. It was, I would say it was mostly maxed out given its current state when, when we bought it January 3rd, 2018. I, I don't know. I don't know how much more you could have done other than add a second, third shift, you know, whatever, right? Throw more people at it. Given my background, all the way back to the beginning in my career in technology, all through private equity, I've had a front row seat to what the, the term technology can do for any number of businesses and any number of industries. Uh, manufacturing in particular, I think, has been probably slow to adopt maybe the traditional sense of technology. When you talk about software and, you know, computers and e even email. CRT monitors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, manufacturing has been incredibly aggressive in the sense of technology when you talk about machine tools and CAD CAM. And I mean, it's, it's actually an incredibly advanced technology industry, but 
But in the traditional sense of how can technology help me grow my business, I, I certainly saw opportunities there. So go back 2018, we bought the company. I knew based on my background from the early parts of my career and then throughout 100 plus merger acquisition investment opportunities that there were two things I was looking for. That was an ERP system. We had a, we had a homegrown system that was an access database with some reporting that basically just kind of processed an order and created a lot of paper. Side note, my sister actually wrote that access database system for this company. No way. Come on. Yeah. 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 Which is just ironic, right? Um, it was called the blue screen <laughs> and, and it's for what they needed out of it. It was fine. Um, for what I needed out of it, it was not fine. The other thing I knew was that I could get data out of my machines that could tell me a lot because I had done it. Now, when I did it, custom installations, half million dollar, you know, custom software jobs, I, I knew I couldn't do that, but I knew I knew it was locked up inside there. So 2018, I go to IMTS to look at two things, ERP systems and machine monitoring. That's the only thing I was really going for. I had plenty of machines. I had plenty of everything else, but I needed those two things. And in all honesty, I went to see two. I went to see one ERP system and one machine monitoring system and was very pleased with the ERP system I found, was not pleased with the machine monitoring system I'd found. Not not necessarily because of them. It just wasn't what I needed. And then, and part of a big need for me was I wanted integration to my ERP. I didn't want to teach two or three systems out on the shop floor. I wanted one. And you can even blame that on my early days. I mean, Greg, when we used to install software on the shop floor, we had to teach people how to use a mouse. But I mean, that was, you know, again, mid, late 90s, right? I mean, yeah, there wasn't a computer in every home and every desk. So I certainly didn't want to take on teaching my shop floor two systems. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to start and, and grow. So, you know, we, we had a every business I've ever bought, invested in, whatever, had very aggressive growth goals. I, I believe it's very doable. It's very hard, but I believe it's very doable to if you if you put the effort in to double every five years, which is 20 percent year over year growth. I knew I could do that with this company, but I was going to need technology to help. Right. I need an ERP system. I need I need a lot of things to help get me there. I, I left IMTS in September 18 with a decision on my ERP system. We were live in January of 19. So we had implemented the training, everything in, what's that, three months. It was super quick. It was very, very aggressive. But yeah, you, you like you said earlier, we were with ProShop and, and it's very doable with ProShop. That's, so, so along, the more, along the lines of that more traditional technology investment and, and it being part of our culture, that was kind of the, to me, it was almost the foundation of what we needed to go where we were expecting to go. From there, I mean, gosh, I must have bugged poor Paul Van Meter probably quarterly for the next several years about a machine monitoring solution that would integrate until he introduced me to you. Thanks for that intro, Paul. Yeah. You know, I mean, that that's another piece of the technology, right? I mean, if I know what's happening on the machine, I can improve what we're doing and or or use a successful job to learn from to maybe improve a job that's not going well. I can show my operators, my machinists. Hey, you know, we've got you running, you know, we have the two of you running these three machines. Here's data straight from your machine, right? There's no, there's no filter in there. It's just like, 
This is when it was running. This is when it wasn't. Do you see here? You could have got this part started while this was running. Not from a using a whip on the floor standpoint, but from a training our people. And as I told the guys not too long ago in a shop meeting we were having, you know, the, the skills we're trying to teach you are not to make Hill better. They're to make you better. You take the skill of knowing how to keep two machines running in an efficient manner, and you're valuable to everybody in this industry, not just Hill. That's not us trying to crack a whip on the floor. That's us trying to be as efficient as we can so we can be competitive on our pricing. We can hit our schedules and improve everybody every day. That's where I look for technology. So like one of the, this is going to get me on a, a rabbit trail that we may not want, but are you familiar with the servant leadership model? Totally. Right. So that's how I view leadership. My customer is everybody in this building. We have our customers that we deliver parts to, but my job is the you know, owner of this company is to provide everybody the tools they need to do the job I expect them to do. Same way with my management team. Their job is to provide the guys on the floor everything they need to perform in the manner that we need them to. So whether that's, and when I say every tool, that might be an end mill, right? I mean, it doesn't do any good to give somebody a job that we don't have the right end mill. It also doesn't do any good to give them a job that we don't know how long it's going to take to set up. And we don't have an expectation of how long it's going to take to run that job. That servant leadership model is probably core to our culture of let me give you, let me give everybody that needs it the tools they need to do their job. So whether that's an ERP system or a machine monitoring solution or an end mill, to me, those are all the same thing. Those are tools and resources that my team needs to do what we promise to our customers, which is to deliver quality parts on time every time. That's it. In the, in the slogan. So that's, the that's slogan. right from the slogan. <laughs> so technology is a big, broad word, right? That's a self-centering hydraulic vice, or it's a piece of software that automatically bubbles the prints for quality, or it's machine monitoring that, that tracks how we're doing on a job so that we can price it correctly. One of the things I just went over with my team, and, and shame on me, I hadn't explained this earlier, They've always felt like our, our, our machine monitoring and our tracking of their time is to make sure they're doing their job, right? Like it's kind of, a, it's a little bit of a big brother thing. Just last month, we were having a shop meeting and I explained to everybody, I said, look, it's not always about you're not getting it done in the time we thought it would be done. If you're getting it done twice as fast, I need to know that too, because that may mean my price is out of line. If, I, if I've quoted it to be a 20 minute operation, and it's taking 11, I'm probably charging too much for that part. And if someone comes in and rebids that part with my customer, I'm going to lose it. So it's not always an opportunity to go, oh, look, we doubled our shop rate because we're running twice as fast as we had quoted. You're also exposing yourself to an opportunity for someone to come in and take the work from you. So the accuracy of the, the, the people doing the work, entering the data correctly, but also then to back that up, like having machine monitors, new datanomics, to pull the, the real data, it allows me to make sure that I'm, and I, and well, I'll also say it is to make sure that I'm competitive and competitive doesn't always mean that I'm close to the lowest cost. I want to be right in the middle. I don't want to be the lowest. I don't necessarily want to be the highest, right? I want to deliver quality parts on time every time. And if my price is competitive and I'm delivering quality parts on time every time, I'm not going to lose that work. It, there's nothing in there that says I'll deliver you the cheapest parts on time every time. And my customers respect that we're, we, you know, we're, we're, again, we're very fortunate. We've, our customer base is very relationship driven and, and they don't, 
they want me to make money. They don't want me to go out of business because I didn't make money. They want quality parts on time. That's it. And as long as it's not, they're not having to pay an unreasonable premium for that, it's fine. I just need to be competitive. But technology allows me to be competitive. Whether So again, whether that's software, whether that's the correct tooling, work holding, so forth, or automation, you know, robotics, bar feeders, parts catchers, those types of things. To me, that's all technology. And if I utilize them correctly, they make me better. They make me bigger, stronger, and faster. Sure do. I'm looking at some of your some of your recently run jobs, Mike, and and I've got to say you've you've got a bunch of stuff dialed in. I'm I'm looking at at one. You're running on the TC2500 today. Eight minute target in in Pro Shop. You're typically running them in anywhere from seven nine to seven thirty. And you know you you look at history. You were doing them in you were doing them in nine ten minutes. You know, not that long ago. Yeah, I know that job. And that's, and you know, what's interesting about that job too, I would say we've been running for 15 years. Wow. Technology, right, has allowed us to drill that in. And I know for a fact, when we bought the company and I first was exposed to that job, that was a 10 minute job. But through knowing what we can do, looking at work holding, looking at tooling, looking at, and actually in that particular job, we even worked on some material specifications with the customer. We, we've we totally changed the way we ran it 10 years ago to today. What'd you say we're running close to seven minutes? Seven minutes, yeah. We're still getting paid for the 10 minutes, honestly. <laughs> the benefit on the customer to that, I mean, I would tell the customer that. The price hasn't gone up. Look at the Look at the period of the economy we are in right now, right? I mean, like with inflation and material pricing and and labor rates and all that like skyrocketing over the last couple of years. Those types of advancements in technology and the investments we've made and the machine, you know, all the things we've done to be bigger, stronger, faster. It's given me much more freedom to not have to pass all that along to my customer. If we were still running 10 minutes, my customer would be paying probably 20 to 30 percent more than they were five years ago. But they're not. So it's been, it's good for them too. Your investment in technology is actually inflation protection for your customer because the material you're putting in there is certainly way more than you were paying for 15 years ago. Two to three times. (laughs) Your tools are more expensive. There's no doubt about that. Your process optimization, you're right. Your labor's more expensive. Your electricity's more expensive, but your process optimization more than makes up for it. I'll go back to what I said earlier. I had an aggressive goal to double the size of the company in five years. I mean, most business owners would tell you that's aggressive, right? Every, there's people that have done it. I'm not, I mean, I'm not anything special. But when I add the statement of every five years, so 18 to 23, 19 to 24, 20 to 25, I, I have that expectation every year. That gets a little more aggressive. A lot more aggressive. It's It's one thing to have 20% year over year growth for five years. It's, it's different to do it for 20 years. They call that a dynasty. I've been very fortunate in a lot of the endeavors I've been involved in over the last 20 years. We've been able to do that. It's hard work, but if you have the right team, you have the right tools, it's definitely doable in a year. It's harder to do over five years, especially when there's a pandemic in the middle of it. But I mean, we did it from a revenue perspective. We were $10,000 short in our fifth year, I will admit, but I'll take that. I mean, like, so we were 99.8% of the way there. But you can't do it on cruise control. Fortunately, I'm at a point in my career where I don't want to be on cruise control. That's the disease of entrepreneurship right there. No such thing, unless it goes really fast. Yeah, don't get too comfortable. So, Mike, I mean, every time we speak, I learn so much more about the depth of your journey and why you do things the way that you do. 
and even more in this conversation about about how you got into the industry. So the, one of the things we like to end with here on Manufacturing Mavericks is given that fully compound experience you just took us through and that windy road of walking the shop floor by selling data collection systems onto it before anyone even knew how to do that to getting into the investment side, the financials of the business and seeing, wow, you know, manufacturing companies are a great business to falling in love with one right in your backyard and, you know, wanting to carry on the tradition and the culture of it. If you could go back in time and you could talk to the version of yourself that you know when that manufacturing torch was first lit, when you first fell in love with that shop floor, what advice would you give to yourself back then? Man, you hit deep. Existentialism. Man, almighty. I might broaden that a little bit. Please do. Maybe this touches on the manufacturing torch. Maybe it doesn't. I, I like listening to podcasts. Half the time I've got an AirPod in my ear listening to something, all sorts of different topics. You keep those on your Walkman? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a whole suitcase of cassette tapes. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, That's awesome. I, I, I mean, I learn a lot from other people. I, uh, it's, I enjoy learning their journeys and what they did well and what they didn't. And I actually heard one today, and, and this is going to be a side subject. And it, it honestly, like, frankly, it pissed me off. Really? Yeah. It wasn't one of ours, was it? It wasn't manufacturing Mavericks. <laughs> it, it was not manufacturing Mavericks. It was, manufa- it was in the manufacturing industry. If I'm honest, it made me mad. It was very discouraging to a potential entrepreneur. It was like, hey, this is hard. You don't want to do this. This is a hard business to be in. And you're going to have to do this. And you're going to have to do that. And you're going to have to hire an attorney. And then you're going to have to have an accountant. And I was really turned off by it. Because at the end of the day, I'm an entrepreneur's biggest cheerleader. I don't care what you're doing. Man, I am. I'm the biggest cheerleader an entrepreneur might ever have, vocally or not. Like I'm rooting everybody on. I know how hard it is. And I've done it many, many times, all the way back to straight out of college to today. How I'm trying to tie this together is, I, you know, whether it's manufacturing or it's women's pajamas. I, I mean, I'm just, you know, like whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Which you have to manufacture those too. If you love something, just go for it. You know, I mean, probably my biggest, this is a good example. Got out of the software business, had moderate success in that. I was, I was certainly proud of what we had done. And I remember sitting on my back porch with, you know, little kids sitting with my wife and she's like, what are you going to do next? I said, you know, I, I really enjoyed manufacturing. Like it was fun. Like I, it was, it's cool watching things be made and figure out how to make them, figure out how to make them better. And there's so many dials and knobs you can turn to try new things and you know like improve just improve what you're doing and but i also really like the transactional side of business you know she reminded me a couple years ago like that i'm living my dream because sitting on the back porch that night i told her i said you know i think what i i think i really want to help other people achieve their dreams and that's what i see like my career in private equity was was you're, you're helping people achieve a dream, right? They started a company, they want to sell it, they want to buy a company, you know, all the, I mean, these are dreams of theirs. It enabled me to help other people help themselves, raise money, buy things, sell things, whatever it was. And along the way, hopefully I'll make enough money myself in that deal that then I can do it for myself. 
And she reminds me of this because remember, I told you I've I've known the, the previous owner of Hill for 20 plus years. I had said, you know, maybe maybe I can do enough private equity and, and you know, merger acquisition type work to make enough money to buy like my own manufacturing company. She said, well, what's what's manu- what do you mean? What, what's a manufacturing company? And I said, well, something like Cheryl has like Hill Manufacturing. She goes, oh, OK, that was kind of the end of that. Well, she literally reminded me 15 years later that I have the opportunity to buy Hill Manufacturing <laughs> right? and that I had built my whole career, not with that front of mind. Well, the, the whole issue of the Hill Manufacturing, I mean, it, you know, not to back up too much in the podcast, but when the opportunity really arose, I was having a lot of fun running a very successful private equity fund. We had 30, 40 companies or, you know, investments under our purview and it was fun. I, was, I there was nothing in my life I wanted to change. The opportunity, the hill opportunity comes up and I'm like, man, I don't know. Like I'm having fun. It's personally rewarding. It's financially rewarding. I mean, everything else. And she reminded me of that story at that time when then I knew it was time to pull the trigger. Like, okay, this is what I've actually been working toward. I didn't remember that. That's what I was working towards. But I had the opportunity I dreamt of 15 years prior sitting in my lap. So back to your question, what would you tell yourself? That's a long way of getting the, to that answer. <laughs> I think I see it coming. Yeah, which is just do it. It's hard work. It, it, so that the the thing that podcast had right today is it's hard work. It is absolutely hard work. But if you love something and you want to, you know, you think that this is where you want to go, just take your shot. Go ahead and throw that machine in your garage. Start making parts. I've got people here locally I've worked with that, that have done exactly that. They've, they've put that machine in their garage and now they have three and now they're looking for a building. You know, now they got some money from the department of commerce to help them relocate to a building that has four machines and two employees. And just know that along the way, you're going to have cheerleaders like me saying, I love that story here. Why don't you run these jobs for me? Because I want to help you too. You know, you don't have a granite, table to check your parts on. I got six extras. (laughs) Wow. I'm going to load it in your truck. Take it with you. What I would say specifically about anybody in manufacturing that has dreams and ambitions. I've been in nearly every industry you can name. I mean, we could, we could play like a little quiz show things like, Mike, have you ever done a deal (laughs) in this industry? And the answer is probably going to be yes. This is the only industry I've been in that like, we're all here for each other. The community is amazing. Locally, nationally, regionally, it doesn't matter. I mean, everybody's here to help. I mean, just look at the vast number of people that are in this industry that are doing what you're doing with this podcast or other podcasts or like Tony Gunn with all he does, right? This is all free information and advice to people. Titan Gilroy, right? Great example. You know, he's got an entire education program to teach you to become a machinist and a really good one, right? When I have my younger crew, you know, I said, I've got a great crew under 30 and even 20. And they're like, what can I do to get better? I'm like, just go follow Titan and like join his program and do it. You do all the things he's taught people to do. I'm going to immediately start paying you a lot more than you're making. You know, learn every day, learn about all this technology, whether it's metal cutting tooling or whether it's machine tools or whether it's automation or whether it's ERP systems and machine monitoring and inspection software, you know, all these things. This industry, I would say, is more, more accepting and open to anybody and everybody than any industry I've ever dealt with. 
So again, travel back in time. If your passion, if my passion in 2003, when I sold my software company was to eventually get in the manufacturing business, in all honesty, it shouldn't take me 15 years to do it. There, the resources, the knowledge, the, the people that are willing to give you a helping hand to do it are there. And I could have done it a lot earlier and I didn't. It worked out fine for me. I'm not regretting the path I took, but you can do it. Like, just go for it. It's there. What a fantastic answer, Mike. I know you you thought you took a long journey to get there, but I mean, here's what I heard is if you're built for entrepreneurship, there's only one way to find out and it's to do it way sooner than you probably think you should just go. And the reason that podcast pissed you off and why it would piss me off too is because no one has the right to be the gatekeeper over what you're going to do, right? Over what your dream is, over what your enterprise is, over what you're aspiring to do. There is no gatekeeper other than the guy in the mirror. And if you want to go, go. And if you don't know if you want to go, go too. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a big world out there. The number of people that made it and that are more than willing to help the next person make it is unprecedented as far as I'm concerned in business. No doubt about it. Infinite game, infinite opportunity. And in my opinion, someone who's playing it incredibly well, definitely one of the ma uh, mavericks of manufacturing. Mike, always enjoy speaking with you. Really appreciate your time being on the podcast. Can't wait to come back out there and, and see you again and hit a couple pool shots in the barn and maybe see the updated list in the men's room. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to do that and uh, bring your golf clubs and we'll go play a little golf and maybe drink a little bourbon too. Your wish is my command, Mike. Awesome, awesome, awesome having you. Thanks again for the time. Fantastic episode. Uh, can't wait for this one to come out. Wish you continued success, Mike. Let's go double again. Thanks for everything you've done for us, brother. Appreciate you. You got it. Take care, Mike. Thank you for listening to Manufacturing Mavericks. If you'd like to learn more, listen to past episodes, or nominate a future Maverick to be on our show, visit mfgmavericks.com. And don't forget to subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app.